Welcome to the Roadmap to Wealth show. The show is hosted by the Invest Tribe community, a total European resource for anyone looking to succeed in all sorts of investing. Real estate, stock market, bonds and ETFs, cryptocurrency, foreclosure, peer-to-peer lending, business and startups. Before we get to today's interview, if you are a new listener, be sure to go to investtribe.org and subscribe because we offer content, tools and an international community of experts, newbies and everyone in between to help people to learn investing, network, find partners, deals and financing and make the best investing decisions possible. Let us start the show. Hello. My guest today's episode of Roadmap to Wealth Show is none other than the Dave Foster of the 1031 Investor. He has a degree in accountancy and a real estate investor for 20 years of experience. He is well-known tax strategist, a qualified intermediary, and most of all, a 1031 exchange expert. Hi, Dave. How are you today? Absolutely awesome, Elaine. It's so good to be here. Thank Thanks you for, for having me. Yeah, thank you for coming. We are very lucky to have you here, uh, Dave. So can you tell us about yourself and why you became a very short sold after tax strategist? Yeah, you know, so many times, like with everyone, we journey through life. And out of necessity, we take a left turn one day, and that changes everything for us. Yeah. And that was really my, I did not plan on being an accounting nerd all my life. That wasn't my lifelong aspiration. But my wife and I were wanting to create a life that would allow us to live with passive income. We wanted to sail the world and raise our boys on a sailboat. And we were trying to figure out how can we do that? How can we get off the corporate ladder to be able to do that? And we hit upon real estate as what we thought was our path. And so we jumped in like everybody does. And I bought a duplex in Denver, Colorado and fixed it up and sold it. And it was awesome until my accountant said, gosh, you realize what you're going to have to pay in taxes on this? What I did not realize is that in all of our endeavors through the American economic system, we have a silent partner and his name is Uncle Sam. The government is our partner in everything, and it wants its fair share of taxes. So what I was left at the end was really disappointing. And so I embarked on a search to find a better way. And that was when I discovered the power that can be harnessed in the 1031 exchange, which is part of the tax code. And I started doing them for myself, and that simply led to doing them for others. And then finding every way I can within the tax code to be able to legally avoid taxes so they can be used for my benefit instead of the government's benefit. Absolutely. And that was 20 years ago. So tell me, for those who uh, listen to us, what is it, a 1031 exchange? And why it is so important to real estate investors? Well, remember I said like with my first duplex, sold it, made a profit, but then a bunch of that profit went to pay the tax. The 1031 exchange is a part of the tax code that allows you to sell investment real estate and using a process, then go buy new investment real estate and you get to indefinitely defer 
the payment of that tax. So instead of simply writing a check to the government for the tax, you get to use that amount to go buy more real estate for yourself. And when you start to put that into perspective, that becomes very much like what Albert Einstein called the eighth wonder of the world, which is compound interest. We make money and then we get to make money off the money we make. And then we make the money off the money that we made. And that's how truly passive wealth is formed. So every time one of my clients or I do 1831 exchange, we get to take the tax and use it to go buy new real estate. So think about a, um, if you had a $100,000 profit on a piece of property, you could end up paying maybe twenty dollars or $30,000 of that to the government for tax. But if instead you use that with a 1031 exchange, that is conceivably gone $30,000 going to you instead of to the government. That's two to $3,000 a year that is in your pocket every year instead of the government's. Think how that adds up over time. And that's when we truly do start to have passive income built off the deferred taxes. So how can an investor defer taxes and leverage his capital to expand an investment portfolio? And especially, is it legal? Absolutely, it's legal. That's, the, that's kind of the funniest thing about this whole thing is it is one of the original parts of the tax code. It was put into play in 1921. But for the first 80 years of that, it was only available 60 years of that, it was only available to investors with a lot of savvy and experience and very expensive attorneys because it just wasn't user-friendly. But then there was a massive court case that ended in 1996 called the Starker case, where all of a sudden it became allowable for any kind of investor instead of only those with large land holdings and large equipment. And so it's relatively recent as far as everybody being able to do it, but it's actually been a part of the tax code for a hundred years. And so from 1996 until 2006, we saw 1031s really starting to climb because everybody was going, oh my goodness, here's this new thing we can do. And it was awesome. But you and I both know what happened in 2006, right? Yeah, we like the dark days. Anybody that had made profit, there was no more profit. So there was no more any reason to do 1031 exchanges. So nobody stopped doing them. So we went as an industry from starting out in 1996 with 75,000 exchanges. In 2005, there were over 500 exchanges done. And the next year, 80,000 again. There's no memory, that fireside memory of passing along that knowledge because all those investors went broke. All of the realtors went out of business. Mm -hmm. So since the market turned around in 2010-ish, right, we've started to see them climb again because as investors have profit, that's when they want to start looking at how they can shelter that. And that really is, it's, it's such this hidden little voodoo kind of thing, and yet absolutely legal, 
And there's hundreds of thousands of them done every year. You and I just had to find it. How do you use 1031 and investment syndication? How complicated it is? Syndications are very interesting animals, aren't they? And for passive income, the tip, let, let's back up. We'll talk about what the 1031 exchange has to be. When you do a 1031, you're actually selling real estate. And then you are actually buying new real estate. Now, any entity that can own real estate can do a 1031 exchange, but they actually have to sell the actual real estate. So I could own a piece of real estate as a partnership or a limited liability company, and that limited liability company can sell the real estate and do a 1031 exchange and buy new real estate. But the taxpayer has to be the same. So whoever sells has to be the same person that buys. Now, let's apply that to a syndication. A syndication is typically a partnership type entity. It's a company that is going to own a piece of real estate and improve it and run it for the benefit of the members or the owners, if you will, of the partnership. Now, the partnership is who owns the real estate, so it can do the 1031 exchange, but the members or the partners of the partnership don't own real estate. They only own a membership interest in the partnership itself. So if I were wanting to sell a duplex and then go invest using a 1031 exchange, I could not use the proceeds from my duplex to buy a membership interest in the partnership. That would not qualify. But I could use the proceeds from the, from the sale of the duplex to buy a tenant in common interest or an actual percentage of the building itself. And that's how we're seeing syndicators work these days when they can make it work, is they will actually sell the 1031 investor a piece of the property so that the investor is selling real estate and buying actual real estate. And that's how the syndications can work. But if you're simply selling real estate and buying a membership interest in a partnership, that does not qualify. Yes, I see. Thank you very much for this explanation. So how long does an investor need to hold on the 1031 exchange property? One of the greatest areas of the tax code because there is no statutory holding period. Um, most people feel very comfortable at more than a year. So 1031s are not for the typical fix and flipper. Mm -hmm. If you're, and this is actually how the law is described, if your intent was to buy the property primarily to resell it, you can't do 1031s. But if your intent was to hold the property for productive use, then the 1031 is appropriate. So the standard becomes not a specific time period, but what your intent was and how you can demonstrate that. Most people will feel very comfortable at anything more than a year. But there could always be reasons why maybe a period of less than or more than a year might be appropriate. My favorite guy is one from this year. 
where he sold a property he'd only owned for a month. Mm-hmm. And we were talking to him. He said, not sure that this is allowable for you. He goes, well, but I had to agree to honor the lease in my purchase contract because the tenant was a friend of the seller. Huh. I said, well, that makes sense, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That your intent was to hold it. So why are you selling it? He said, it was because a bear took up residence by her garbage can. <laughs> so she moved because she was scared of the bear. Yeah. I don't know how anybody <laughs> could story. argue with that. So another question I have. So does a vacation home qualify for an exchange? What does not qualify for 1031 exchange? Any kind of investment real estate. So whether it is commercial, industrial, residential, raw land, any kind of real estate that you have held with the intent of using it for investment use can be sold and then you purchase new investment real estate of any other type. So one thing that becomes really powerful as we go through what I like to call the life cycle of a real estate investor is that a lot of times we'll start out with something smaller and comfortable to us Maybe it's a small single family rental or a duplex, or for so many of our foreign investors, it could be a vacation rental on the beach in Florida or near Mm -hmm. Disney World or wherever. But they start off with that and it becomes an income producing machine for them. But when they sell, they no longer want to, they want to grow bigger. So they will buy more than one, or they will change from residential into commercial or large multifamily where the management headaches are less. So they're constantly shifting their portfolio in type of real estate and in location of real estate. Because you can 1031 exchange as a U.S. investor anywhere in the United States and Guam and the U.S. Virgin Islands, a few other small places. But You can exchange any kind of U.S. property for any other kind of U.S. property anywhere in the United States. So if your investment property was in California and you think that it's topped out and it's not going to be generating a lot of appreciation, maybe it's time to diversify and go to the Midwest and pick up multifamily properties there or to go to commercial properties in Texas. But that's the beautiful thing about the 1031 is it's absolutely flexible in type and in numbers and in location. So as you go from wanting to be more active to wanting to be passive, that's how you use the 1031 to position your portfolio. So can I do 1031 exchange if he's a co-investor? Yes, absolutely. Again, the key with that co-investor is going to be that each one of you need to own a piece of the real estate itself. Now, in the United States, the, the, the jargon that is used, the language used, is to call them tenants. So if I own a piece of property, I am the tenant of that property. That also refers to who rents it, but for purposes of owning it, that's what tax law calls it. Now, if you and I were to go together and buy a piece of property, we might buy it as tenants in common, which means The two of us own a piece of real estate, but really the way the law defines it is we each own a piece of real estate, 
that happens to be half of a larger piece. So when we get ready to sell that, um, if you still like me, Elena, we could go together and do a 1031 exchange and go buy a new piece of real estate. Or you might decide you want to go buy something in Washington. So you would do a 1031 exchange on your half and I would do a 1031 exchange on my half. When you are tenants in common, you can separate like that. Now, if it's like a syndication where what you and I actually are partners in a company that owns a piece of real estate, you can't do that. The company would have to sell and then do the 1031. So co-investing can be awesome. You just want to plan right so that you can use the 1031 effectively. It is so interesting. I learned so much from you. So uh, the other question which concerns myself. So can the 1031 exchange be used by foreign investors in the United States? Oh yeah, you know, that is one of the least understood known statutes of all. Um, yeah, I know you've bought and sold property here, so you probably know those four ugly letters, F-I-R-P-T-A. Mm -hmm. which stands for Foreign Investment in Real Property Tax Act. Basically, what that is, was that was about 20 or 30 years ago, the IRS decided that foreign investors were taking too much of their profits back home. So they instituted a withholding. And as of now, that withholding is 15% of the sales price. So... If a foreign investor sells a piece of property in the United States, the government immediately withholds 15% of the sales price. Now, that doesn't have anything to do with profit. You, They have to file a tax return to then determine what actual tax they have to pay. But it doesn't matter, you lose that 15% right off the top. So understanding the impact of that, if you sell a modest house for $300,000, the IRS, the government, is going to keep $45,000 of that. That's not a little bit. But the 1031 exchange can be used to mitigate that. Foreign investors can do 1031 exchanges. There's a very special process that they have to go through but they can do the 1031 exchange. And when they do that, they not only do not have to pay the tax ultimately, they also do not have to have the FERPTA withholding taken out. So they can take the entire $300,000 and go and use that for their next purchase. How awesome is that? It's so awesome. I didn't know that actually. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. While the... Uh, now, the, the, it's, it's much more restrictive because while the U.S. taxpayer investor gets to sell their property and they've got 45 days to shop around and they have 180 days to close, the foreign investor either has to obtain a certificate of non-withholding from the government that takes like four or five months. And that was before the COVID crisis. Yeah. So really, the chances of getting that are very slim these days. Or the foreign investor has to do what is called a simultaneous exchange, where their sale 
and their purchase are both already lined up and within like two days of each other. And as long as they do that, we can create the framework that allows them to do the 1031 exchange and all of their proceeds can go to the purchase of the new property. Thank you very much for this information, Dave. It's so interesting. So another question I have, so how do you calculate gain on 1031 exchange? So to calculate your gain on a piece of property, that is going to be the difference between what is called your adjusted cost basis and how much you sell the property for. So there's two things that go into, three things that go into what your basis in a property is. So I have a property that I purchased for $100,000. That's the first part. My basis starts out as $100,000. Now, every time I do a significant improvement to that, that is what they call capitalized, it gets added to that basis. So let's say that it was really run down and I added $50,000 of improvements. The IRS looks at that as if I paid $150,000. And then for the US-based taxpayer, there's this thing called depreciation where the IRS lets you pretend that it loses value every year and you subtract that. So let's say there was $30,000 of depreciation. That means you take my original cost, which was 100, add 50 to that, and then subtract 30. So my basis in the property is $120,000. Now, if I sell that for $200,000, you simply subtract the two. My gain is $80,000. And that's, I know it gets convoluted, doesn't it? <laughs> now, here's where it gets really creepy because the IRS requires you to invest all of your equity and profit yeah. to do a 1031. So you don't get to just invest the profit in that example. You actually have to do two things. You have to purchase at least as much as you sell, and you have to use all of the proceeds. So if I sold it for $200,000 and there was a loan on it, of $100,000, I have $100,000 in cash that I have to use to buy at least $200,000 in real estate if I want to defer all tax. So it's not as easy as you think because you've got to replace what you originally put in. And everybody says, well, Dave, come on. I put that in originally. It's not taxable. And I agree. It's totally not taxable. But here's the problem. When you take money out of the 1031 exchange, the IRS says it's profit first. So you could make the argument that, well, this is my original capital. You'd be right. The IRS says, no, that's profit. Yeah, we know who wins that argument, right? Every time. So I as long as you purchase at least as much as you sell and use all the cash, you'll defer all the tax. There's any way you're able to cash out from 1031 exchange? Yeah, there's a couple different ways. So the first and easiest one would be to do a 1031 exchange, sell a property, buy a new property, and then do a refinance. 
So you refinance your investment property. You get the cash that you want to use for whatever, and that's not taxable. But meanwhile, you deferred all the tax and your tenants are paying the mortgage. So that's the most tax effective way. You always can take money out um, from a 1031 exchange as long as you understand that you'll pay tax on whatever you take out. So if you had an immediate need for $20,000, you can take that, pay tax on the $20,000, but shelter the rest of the tax that would be due in the 1031. That's not so bad at all either. There are also whole classes of investments that are totally passive in nature, but provide income. And that's kind of the goal of the 1031 investor is to move forward so that ultimately they don't have any debt. They simply have these properties or these investments that are 1031 compliant, that are providing income for as long as they live. And they never have to really think about them again. So that's the third option. The fourth one is not my favorite, but it works. And it involves the four Ds. Defer, 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 and then die. Now, you can obviously tell why it's not my favorite. Because of what you have to do at the end. But as long as you never sell your 1031 property, you will never have to pay the tax. As long as any time you sell the property, you do another 1031, you never pay the tax. And when you die, your heirs, as a U.S. taxpayer, inherit the property as if they paid market value for it on the day you died. So the tax really does disappear for your heirs. So that's why the 1031 exchange over the last century has really been the greatest uh, vehicle for intergenerational wealth transfer because you can give your properties to your heirs and nobody ever has to pay the tax. It's absolutely fantastic system you have there. So, but in any good system, there are some challenges, I guess. So what are they? Uh, when you are buying on property and cash, leveraging one, for example, what we should be aware of? Right. Well, buying and leverage, you, it, it really all centers around those two requirements for reinvestment. That you purchase at least as much as you sell and that you use all of the cash. Because as long as you do that, the IRS does not care if you take out more debt as long as you don't end up with cash in your pocket. So if I sold a property for $320,000 and there were $20,000 of closing costs, my net sale becomes $300,000. That's what I've got to buy. And if there was a mortgage on that property for $100,000, then there would be $200,000 of cash that goes into my exchange account. So my responsibility is to buy at least 300,000 using 200,000 in cash. So what could I do? Well, I could buy more than one property. So what if I bought two $150,000 properties using $100,000 down on each one? Oh, wow, I just really kept myself right where I wanna be in my investing niche. And I added leverage 
on top of where I was, but I also deferred all my tax. So that as far as borrowing new money, as long as you don't walk away with cash, buy as big as you want. Go buy that $10 million apartment complex as long as you've got the down payment for it from the 1031. You can also add your own proceeds at any time if you want to make up the balance, if you want to own it in cash. And a lot of our foreign investors, that's what they'll do because borrowing within the United States becomes problematic. So what they'll simply do is add their own proceeds. They would take that 200,000, add 100,000 of their own and go buy a, a $300,000 property. Perfectly fine. So how many times uh, can you do the 1031 exchange? Is there any limit? Until you hit that last D. Yes, I see. Okay, so what happens when you sell a property bought in 1031 exchange? So you want to think about, actually, you and I would remember this philosophy of real estate. You make money in real estate when you buy it, right? Because it's all about buying it at the right price. But with the 1031 exchange, you keep all of your money when you sell it. So you always want to think about the 1031 exchange starting with the sale of a piece of real estate. Up until that point in time, you're simply using a property, however you want. But when you go to sell it, that's what starts the 1031 exchange. So when you close your sale, you then need to start finding, or before that, you need to start finding your replacement properties. From the date of the closing of your sale, you've only got 45 more days to shop around to identify your potential replacements. Mm -hmm. And there's some rules surrounding that that we probably don't have time to go into, but you've only got that 45 days. So it's really critical that you be shopping probably even before you close your sale so that you can get your new property under contract as quickly as you can. But up until day 45, you're simply shopping, creating your identification list, putting it under contract if you can. You have a total of 180 days to complete the entire process. Now, that's not such a big deal because six months to close, I could probably do that. But in a very busy market, finding those good properties within 45 days Yes, it's tough. tough, huh? So I tell people shop quickly. Try to get it under contract as soon as you can. Uh, for a lot of our foreign investors who are trying to do that simultaneous close, they're going to need to have their purchase property under contract before their old property closes so that we can close the sale and the purchase at the same time. So, yeah, finding the right replacement becomes critical. So... Uh, in 10,031 exchange, who holds the money until purchase? That's one of the things the IRS will not let you touch or control. And in tax law, it's called actual or constructive receipt of the money. So any money that you touch, you pay tax on. So there is a required entity called the qualified intermediary. And that's people like me. That's what we do. We process the documents that are necessary for the 1031 exchange, and we create the holding accounts 
so that the client can sell. The money goes into their exchange account and then goes from their exchange account to the purchase without ever touching their hands so that they can avoid the tax. So the IRS requires that process okay, of separation thanks. of documentation. So what an investor wants to do at 1031, he needs to hire a qualified intermediary. You mentioned it before. What does the fee structure look like? Yeah. By the way, the most important thing about hiring a QI, yeah. they have to be in place before you close the sale. Because okay. if you close the sale and they're not, even if the title company still has the money, guess whose control it's in? Yours. Mm-hmm. And you can't do the 1031. I do. I still get calls every month from someone telling me, I closed my property last month or a week ago and I want to do a 1031. I go, too late. That's a new mm-hmm. Has to be in place prior to the closing. Now, as far as the fee structure, we've actually done some studies um, for some other national organizations. And what you're going to find is that a 1031 exchange with a good nationally based company is going to run $750 to $1,500. They're really not that big of a deal because all the QI is doing is just the 1031. You still use all of your regular professionals, your regular realtors, title companies, accountants, attorneys. Everybody's exactly the same with the addition of the qualified intermediary. And that's all they're doing. So as you can imagine, the least expensive 1031s are gonna be with those companies that are doing quite a bit of volume and have economies of scale. So that's all we do. We don't try to do anything else. And when you're doing thousands of them a year, you could do them a little more, less expensively. Thank you very much, David. It was so interesting. So uh, our interview is going to finish soon. So anything else you can share to the concept of defensive investing using 10,031? Defensive investing. There's a term that's near and dear to my heart. So the greatest risk in any kind of investing, and people don't think of this, but your greatest risk is not what the value of your property is. Your greatest risk is what the value of your property is only if you have to sell it. I can own a property that loses half of its value, but if I don't have to sell it, all I need to do is wait. So what is it that creates forced sales? And my contention is that the greatest enemy is leverage. The only time I would have to sell a property is if I can no longer make the mortgage payments on it. If I cannot keep the mortgage payments up, I have to sell the property. And that's what happened to so many investors in 2007 is they were over leveraged. They had to sell. All of my clients back then that didn't have leverage or they had very modest mortgages, none of them lost a penny. Their properties lost a lot of value, but then what happened over the next 15 years? Yes, temporary. Properties gained, right. Mm-hmm. Yes. So defensive investing with the 1031, I try to help my clients take their properties and when they sell, they divide those proceeds into a certain amount where they 
buy properties for cash or for little leverage, and then they take the rest of their property, uh, the rest of their money, and they go heavily leverage another property. So again, let's say I had that $200,000 in cash. I would, one of my clients might buy a property in cash for $150,000. Now, there's no more risk to that property. As long as they can find a renter to cover the taxes and the insurance, that's safe. So it's gonna be protecting them in a downturn. But then they may take that other 50,000 and use that as leverage to go buy a $250,000 property. So they get the additional return on investment from the arbitrage of leverage, but only one property is at risk. So that if the economy really destroys itself again, all they're gonna lose is that property. And they keep a certain amount of their nest egg together. And if you continually do that over time, then by the end of your career, you're going to have several properties that are debt-free, risk-free, and that you can simply use for income the rest of your life when you really can't afford to make mistakes. When you're young like you, you can make mistakes all day long. When you start to get old like me, mistakes hurt us. So we have to be more concerned. So defensive investing is simply separating your properties out. So you have some with minimal leverage and some with maximum leverage to help see you through any kind of downturn. Thank you very much, Dave. It was absolutely fantastic interview. And I'm sure that our listeners uh, learned a lot. So can you tell our listeners how they can in touch with you and learn more about you, how they can contact you? Yeah, that's awesome. Love to speak to anybody. And in particular, if you've got some folks that are curious about how to use the 1031 exchange to avoid FERPTA, um, I actually am in Florida located myself. So although we do work all over the nation, all the Floridians and the people investing in Florida have a special place in my heart. And we have a lot of foreign investors here. <laughs> Love to work with their folks on that. Best way to get hold of me is simply go to our website, the1031investor.com. We've got calculators, videos, articles, and some ways to get a hold of us. And I would love to help out anyone can. Thank you very much, Dave. It was absolutely fantastic interview. And uh, I hope to see you soon uh, on another episode, maybe. We'll do part two. That'd be awesome. Of course. Thank you. Have a nice day. Bye-bye. Thank you for checking out the show. And don't forget, you can find all the resources, links, and show notes over at investtribe.org. See you next week on the Roadmap to Wealth show.